Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Tena koto etefano. Um, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Edamon. Uh, I hope you all are doing great. I understand that the pandemic is a bummer, but hey, uh, there's no better time to read books than now. Um, today we are talking to Max Rashbrook uh, about his new book, Too Much Money, How Wealth Disparities Are Unbalancing Aotearoa, New Zealand. It is a fascinating read, and once you uh, pick it up, you cannot put it down. A little bit about Max. We'll ask him about it as well. But um, just a bit of background. Uh, Max is a journalist, um, author, and academic based in Wellington. Uh, he has written on this uh, topic in- extensively in the past as well, led by his uh, best-selling book, Inequality, uh, A New Zealand Crisis, um, which has helped shape the conversation in the nation as well. He, um, his work has been published worldwide um, in uh, different publications. And also he has twice received the Bruce Jessen Senior Journalism Award. So um, welcome, Max. Uh, I always find it weird <laughs> reading all the qualifications because um, it seems a bit... Um, but I loved your book. I feel, I feel uh, weird reading the qualifications, but I loved your book. So um, how's it going? Uh, it's it's going well. It's going well. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, lovely to be here. So um, to start with, for our uh, listeners, uh, besides the prescribed reading that I've done, um, what has been your background in terms of writing and what has uh, led your interest in writing in this topic? Mm, um, interesting question, and I guess there's been a few stages in that. Um, I, I mean, so I grew up in New Zealand, and I studied here and studied English literature. Uh, actually, at university, a lot of people would have thought that I'd studied politics or economics, <laughs> uh, given what I write about. But um, studied English literature, was doing student journalism, really loved that. So decided I'd be a journalist. Um, and I went off to the UK and worked in London as a journalist for a number of years. Um, and then came back to New Zealand about a decade ago and was just really, you know, startled by and concerned by the level, the disparities between rich and poor um, that were, that had developed. Um, I mean, they'd been there when I was a child, but I hadn't been that aware of them. Um, but I became very aware of them as an adult. And that led me into writing about them and, you know, editing a book about inequality and then it's just been a, a preoccupation of mine for, for most of the last decade yes and um, me being new to New Zealand uh, once I read the book and, and then I started researching a little bit and then you you've you've written extensively about it in, in the in the past as well which is which is quite fantastic and I'm gonna delve into it because it's a, a topic close to my heart now uh, what led you to write specifically 
on this book, especially the disparity between um, uh, between the rich and the poor, and you go through a certain certain concepts. But what led you to write this specific uh, uh, um, uh, book? Um, well, I guess I mean there's 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 an eternal question, right, about mm. economic inequality, about disparities between rich and poor. I think, you know, sort of every certainly every modern civilization um, has grappled with those questions. You know, who gets what? Mm. What is the distribution of these resources? It's one of those perennial concerns. Um, I think it's particularly important to talk about it in New Zealand because. You know, between the mid-1980s and the mid-2000s, we had the biggest increase, certainly in income inequality, in the developed world. You know, so we went from a very egalitarian society in economic terms um, to, you know, relatively quite unequal one. And that's, yeah, that still surprises a lot of people, particularly people mm-hmm. internationally, because they still have this image of New Zealand as being incredibly egalitarian, um, when really it's not. And then I suppose the other thing that's, one of the things, well, a couple of things that prompted um, the current book, Too Much Money, is, you know, I guess firstly the emphasis that the French economist Thomas Piketty has put on uh, wealth and inequalities of wealth specifically, as well as inequalities of income, you know, and the power of inherited, accumulated wealth um, to shape other kinds of inequalities. And also, I think, a growing awareness of sort of factors like class, um, you know, sort of a word that's been out of sort of public discussion for a long time in, in most cases, but which I think is having, uh, you know, is coming back into focus as we realize that it's not just disparities of income and wealth, but all kinds of other disparities that are entrenched and intergenerational. And it's some of those things that I want to focus on in the book. Yes, so, so you weave all these concepts quite well um, uh, within the book. So, in terms of you mentioned egalitarian, and let's uh, step into the history of it a little bit. Um, you see two periods of disparity um, in history. Um, one is before the um, uh, the Second World War, um, or even in the eighteen hundreds, and one post eighties um, nineties. Um, so, so what type of disparity existed at that time, and how they're different from the current one? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a really good way to sort of to sketch it out. I guess I I start with the sort of the disparities in nineteenth century New Zealand because they've sort of almost been written out of our national history. Mm. Um, I mean, and obviously those disparities have multiple aspects. I mean, and, and as I talk about in the book. Um, you know, the most obvious sort of the first disparity, if you like, was through colonization um, and the confiscation and the ropato of a huge amount of Māori land and other taonga. Um, and I think New Zealand as a country is slowly getting to grips with that history and the legacy of colonization. Um, but what even fewer people would realize is that even just within even within the settlers, 19th century New Zealand was an extraordinarily inegalitarian place. And that's surprising um, to a lot of New Zealanders because you know, we do have this image of ourselves as an egalitarian society. And you know, we were sort of brought up to believe that you know, a lot of the colonists come from Europe, had come from England, and come from Great Britain in order to found a more egalitarian society than the one that they had left. Now, I mean, that was true to a significant extent, um, but the history I sort of sketch in the book is one in which there were also a lot of people arriving in New Zealand who weren't committed to egalitarianism and there were people just who were trying to replicate British class society and who did for a period such that in the 1890s, the wealthiest 1% had literally two-thirds of all the assets in the country. Then, you know, as you say, things became more egalitarian, um, you know, certainly through the things like the Great Depression and the election of a Labour government um, that you know, introduced the wealthy state as we know it and state house building and all these other kinds of things. And, you know, we had much stronger trade unions and higher income tax rates and mm. things like that. And then all of that was sort of put into reverse in the 1980s um, was sort of the, you know, known as the Rogernomics period where, you know, along with Anglo sort of nations around the world, we took a sharp turn to a sort of very individualistic view of the world and we had this huge increase in inequalities. 
again. And so you have this story of it's not quite a U, sort of a slightly asymmetric U shape or sort of very high inequality mm. declining and then increasing again, but not quite to the level of the 19th century. Yeah, um, you mentioned the period of um, Rogernomics. In terms of triggers and uh, reading from the past and uh, looking at documentary, it seems that uh, the time before that um, had become extensively, you can say, as a controlled economy, and it was an extreme reaction to it, right? So, I mean, what could have been different if if it was not taken as an extreme reform period, if, if Roger Douglas hadn't gone and just broken down the whole system and then go with a new ideology? Was it a factor of time? Um, was it a factor of just uh, putting down your own um, stamp on the policy of the government? Um, and how, how could, have, could that be different? Because so it's a long question. As time has changed, that kind of ideology is kind of entrenched in our social discussions, uh, the individualistic, market-driven, and anything which is proposed opposite to that is considered a extreme left way of working. So, but yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's a really good point. I mean, New Zealand had become, in the 70s and early 80s, a very controlled economy. Uh, you know, the um, opposition, at the time opposition leader, David Longy, said to the Prime Minister Robert Muldoon, look, you can't run this country like a Polish shipyard. Yeah. You know, classic Longy sort of quip that summed um, up the problem. So, yeah, there were huge, you know, controls on what you could import into the country, massive barriers that protected some quite inefficient um, domestic manufacturers. Uh, you know, it was very hard to get your hands on foreign currency. Just, yeah, a very closed off mm. um, economy and to some extent society. And, you know, and one that was experiencing quite a few economic problems, mm. um, although those were exaggerated by the Rogernomics reformers. Mm. So there, there certainly were, were problems. But, yeah, we sort of went from one extreme to the other. And... The, those reformers in the 1980s were motivated by a belief in the power of markets that really approached uh, religious ideology mm. um, in the sense that it was, you know, not really based on evidence. Um, and so, yeah, and so they, you know, it was, it was, like, it was sort of like shock therapy was basically mm. what they applied. And like most shock therapy, it was extremely unsuccessful, um, <laughs> you know, because good therapy isn't shock therapy. That's <laughs> gentle, much gentler therapy. And and what, what they didn't do, I mean, there was a, a third path um, available to them, as I say in the book. We could have just gradually become a bit more like Denmark, you know. So yeah. a society that's got a dynamic, flexible, open economy, very few tariffs, free movement of capital, you know, competing in the world economy, all those kinds of things, but which maintains, you know, quite high tax rates, which fund high quality public services and kind of builds growth from the bottom up, you know, so that you're investing in people, and you're investing in your workforce, you're ensuring that everyone's doing well um, and that there's shared prosperity. I mean, we could have taken that path. There was nothing stopping us from doing mm. that. Instead, we went down this, yeah, this extremely ideological sort of shock therapy mm. path which, among other things, massively increased inequality and poverty. And we're still dealing with the ramifications of that today. Yes, and interesting, in, in the book you do mention, um, you, at, 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 at a few times you have mentioned a strategy to go forward, but then they said, okay, this might not be politically acceptable right now, but we can do a stepwise approach uh, to uh, to moving forward, like you talked about the wealth tax and and, the, and, and also the Kiwi Saver part as well. Um, but we'll talk about that uh, later. One thing I wanted to discuss, that which I never thought about it um, in that way, you said uh, inequality is political, right? Um, and poverty does not exist in isolation. Um, it is connected to wealth. Um, so if, if, you, if you can el elaborate on that a, a little bit as well, because they were fascinating concepts. And, and I've always, in my studies as well in business management, I always thought that, okay, we need to put our, a microscope on poverty, 
fix it and never thought about there at the other end. Mm. Yeah, I think I think they're important things to stress because they they often get forgotten. I mean, I think on the inequality is political line, I always talk about that because I think there's a tendency sometimes for people to either think that inequality is inevitable, mm. you know, and I get pushed back along those lines. People say, "Oh, look, it's just the way of the world," you know. Mm. We just people are, you know, things are always going to be unequal. And I always say, "Well, look, I'm, I mean, even just New Zealand has had massively different levels of inequality even throughout its." you know, history, post-colonization. Um, and those, that inequality has varied because of political decisions around taxes and benefits and, you know, trade union power and the housing market and how it's shaped by government. So that's, you know, and I always think that's important to remember, you know, so that people don't just think, oh, there's nothing we can do. Inequality just is was it, what it is, or it's just, just driven by technology. That's another thing you hear. Mm. Um, whereas even, you know, even technology is political. I mean, who owns, mm. who's, who's going to own the robots yeah. you know, in the future <laughs> will, will determine a lot about inequality. You know, it's not yeah. the robots themselves. It's who owns them because that determines where the profits will flow mm. from automation. Um, so that's, that's always an important point to stress, I think. Um, and on the second point about seeing poverty in connection uh, with affluence, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's understandable because poverty is the thing that is sort of most obviously concerning. You know, it's mm. the thing that's most emotionally distressing and emotions, mm. I think, are at the heart of, of a lot of our politics and, that, and that's a good thing. Um, and it looks like the problem, in quotes. It looks like the thing to be fixed. Mm. Um but the the point that I always try to make is that yeah is that poverty is in some sense a consequence of affluence. You know, it is people having too little to be crude is partly the result of other people having too much. Mm. And one of the I mean, there's multiple connections between those two things. One of them that I point to in the book, just just to give one example, is that um, since the ACs, the share of company revenue that goes to wage and salary earners within a company has declined from about 70% to less than 60%. Yeah. The result of that is that the average wage is about $14,000 a year lower mm. than it would be if workers had maintained their share of, of company revenue. And that money has instead gone to the people who own companies, so what's technically called capital, so mm. you know owners and shareholders and people with equity stakes and and all the rest of it um and so you know that decrease in income for working people is directly connected to the increase for mm. people who own businesses and so we have to see these things as connected and the way to part of the way to redress the lack at one end is to curb the excessive and unjustified and unearned wealth at the other end mm. Yeah, it's um, you said um, interesting thing about the the wealth um, affluence accumulation at the at, at the top was um, you outlined certain differences, not only just the amount of um, capital or wealth you have, but also how you help yourself extend that even further. For instance. Um, having the capability to pay a certain amount of tax um, or having the capability to have political influence. So speaking of that, let's go into the conveyor belt concept that you use. That was um, an amazing thing to read as you outline from the start of life to, to, to the later part of life. Um, it, it seemed like your in a society like we are at the moment with current setup, you, as soon as you're born, you, you're you on the back foot if you are born in a certain, um, in a certain family with a certain level of wealth, or you are, you have an extreme head start um, if you are born at the other end. Yeah. I mean, and I think, and this, this sort of takes the discussion on, you know, the next logical step because, you know, I mean, what, why are we talking about inequalities of income and wealth, right? It's mm. not, you know, as Aristotle said thousands of years ago, it's not because these things are important in themselves, mm. but because they're a means to an end. Mm. 
Yeah. You know, and, and wealth and income play a huge part in determining the opportunities that people have in life. I mean, and we all know that, right? That's mm. obvious. Mm. Um, but the problem then is, you know, if you if you want a society where there are equal opportunities, you know, you can't really have that if rich and poor children have profoundly different starts in life. Um mm. And, you know, what I do in the book with sort of the, the idea of the conveyor belt of advantage mm. and conversely the conveyor belt of disadvantage, mm. is there, there are all these forces, you know, pulling people, you know, towards wealth or towards poverty right from the day they're born or even before they're born, actually. Mm. Um, but, you know, you just look at things like, I mean, you know, wealthy New Zealand parents can afford to spend five times as much on their children's education and do spend five times as mm. much as poorer parents do. Um, and they can afford to buy houses in, you know, in the grammar zones. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't necessarily buy you a better education. I'm not convinced that Auckland Grammar actually teaches better than, mm. you know, Potidua College. Mm. But it means that your children are already making connections with other wealthy children which go, who will go on to be useful to them later in life. And crucially, um, you know, a lot of university courses, especially the most, the ones that are perceived to be most prestigious, recruit disproportionately from those Auckland grammar type schools. Um, one of the really shocking, well, to me, shocking facts mm. that I present in the book is that if you look at, say, the Canterbury, Canterbury University engineering intake over a period of years where they took mm. in 2,000 students, just one of them was from a decile one high school. Yeah. You know, and so at that point, mm. you sort of say, well, there are all these advantages, this conveyor belt of advantage for kids mm. who sort of step onto it as wealthy children at a young age, mm. all these advantages which are just not available to poorer children, and that really pushes back against this notion that we have an egalitarian uh, society. Yeah, and I think this uh, brings us to the the point of um, uh, the, the equality of opportunity and equity, Right for so recent conversations have always happened, um, which are apparent in the vaccine rollout as well with the current pandemic. That uh, there's a discussion around equity that the rollout is not equitable enough to give enough opportunity uh, for certain communities to come up, especially Maori and Pacifica, to get the vaccination. But the other point is that well, it's available for everyone. Why can't you just take it? Right. So why don't you just go and do it? And um, that's one point. Another point I have uh, with my brother-in-law, I have this discussion all the time. He is always complaining about all the um, all the scholarships that are available um, in universities for specific groups of people like Maori uh, and Pacifica scholarships. And he said, why do, why do we need that? And then we'd have to have that discussion about equity and how it is, it, it is necessary. So, I mean, you've discussed it in detail in, in the book as well, but how can we change this mindset in terms of the equality uh, of opportunity right at the top rather than giving equality from the start? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's really complicated and mm -hmm. there's, you know, and there's a lot of different sort of concepts that you've outlined there and they do all sort of overlap because yeah, you've mm -hmm. got those equity issues if you you know if you use that term to describe sort of disparities between men and women, for instance, or mm -hmm. you know Māori and Pākehā, mm -hmm. and you have to address all of those. And I think the kinds of disparities, the inequalities I'm talking about, are just sort of layered on top of those. You know, all those different mm -hmm. sort of inequalities intersect, mm -hmm. if you like. I mean, if you look at people who are in negative net worth, for instance, and I talk mm -hmm. about this in the book, you know, so people who've got more debts than they have assets, you know, the rates for Pacifica women, you know, are about twice those for Pākehā men. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different overlapping forms of disadvantage, and some of them are about equity and some of them are about equality. Um, I mean, how do we, in terms of sort of dealing with that, um, I mean, I think, you know, there's a, there's really quite, at a sort of conceptual level, I guess, mm. or sort of an evidence level, I mean, I lean a lot, as you have seen in the book, mm. on what's called the Great Gatsby graph, mm -hmm. um, which basically shows that the more unequal your mm. society is, mm. the less there is equality of opportunity mm. um, in the sense that more of your income and in life is determined by how much your parents earn. Um, so in a very unequal society like the US, literally half of your income can be predicted from what your parents earned, mm. which is profoundly unfair. 
Somewhere like Denmark, on the other hand, it's only about 15, 15 1, yeah. 5%. And New Zealand, we're somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. So about 30% of your income as a New Zealander can be predicted for what your parents earn. So there's quite a significant transfer of advantage and therefore, you know, disadvantage across the generations in New Zealand. So that's sort of, that's the factual basis for pushing back against people who say, oh, well, look, everything, you know, there's equal opportunities for everyone, everyone mm. can get ahead. I mean, I guess also, though, more profoundly, you know, underneath that conceptual level, things do operate at the at the level of values and beliefs, right? Mm. And, and what we see yeah. and what we don't see. Um, and so I think, you know, at a very fundamental level, changing the conversation is about better articulating a collective view of the world. And, you know, mm. as you've seen in the book, I try to do that around tax, for instance, and how we think about tax, but also just, you know, elevating the role of compassion and collaboration and recognizing the damage that's done, I think, by an overly competitive approach to the world and being better at talking about the value of cooperation, collaboration, mm. how we can all achieve our sort of individual well-being by attending to the collective well-being of society. Yes, um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a um, a bit of a tricky one um, when that conversation uh, pops up. Um, so, in terms of different um, inequality, just in you mentioned it in the chapter is is inequality justified, right? Uh, there are certain point of views that there's certain inequality is absolutely necessary. Right, and um, so w- which w- which are those types of inequalities that you you might think that absolutely necessary? Uh, one concept you mentioned that ones which might motivate to you you to go to another level, but they're only that that's only a small amount of inequality that might be required. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, economic inequalities are different to those sort of equity issues. You know, that you yeah. mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. where you know, you might seek to completely remove inequities between men and women, for instance, mm. so that men and women and other genders indeed, you know, are treated exactly the same. Mm. Economic inequalities are quite different in that by and large, and certainly in my case, people aren't advocating for total equality of income. You know, mm. everyone earns the same or everyone has yeah. the same wealth. You know, that's not generally seen as desirable because most people think that there are some valid reasons why people might have unequal incomes, for instance, mm. and... I mean, very crudely, you know, I think it's unjust if people's incomes are different because of factors that are outside of their control, you know, so because of their upbringing, because they grew up in poverty, Mm. um, because of luck, you know, bad luck, genetic, Mm. you know, things like that. I mean, I don't think people should be paid differently because of the talents they have, because Mm. talents are a genetic inheritance. Mm. And so that's like making life a lottery. Yeah, but but I do think it's okay if people are unequal based on things that is within their control. So the decisions they make, you know, how hard mm. they work, you know, whether they choose to do something that's socially, you know, productive and constructive or not, you know, the extent to which they decide to work longer or shorter hours, you know, in exchange for taking more or less leisure time. Mm. Um, you know, if people spend a long time like doctors becoming educated, then there's a long period in, during which they've sacrificed their earning ability. So mm. it's fair that they earn more later in mm. life to compensate for that. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so there are some inequalities that are justified, but I think they're very small ones because all mm. those factors that I've talked about, you know, the choices you make, you know, there are differences between us on that mm. basis. But, you know, as, as the poet Maya Angelou uh, once said, we are more alike than we are unalike. Yeah. You know, the things that connect us all as humans, I mean, we are very, very fundamentally similar. We all, you know, have the ability to think and dream and hope and make a contribution to society. The difference between differences between us are not huge. Mm. And therefore, I don't think the differences in income and wealth between us should be huge either. Yes. And um, you mentioned a good point and it, it made me remember a pointed book in the book where you, you talk about um, the choices and the mobility within occupations. Like for instance, um, when I grew up, my father is a ophthalmologist, so he's a, he's a doctor and me as an eldest son, I had um, this big burden 
<laughs> that I had to get into medical school and do it. But looking at my father working and looking at my own interests, I wanted to get into journalism or politics or international studies. But then we reached a uh, agreement between us that, okay, you okay, don't become a doctor, but if you want to do something else, just get into the best business school. I said, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. But even though that was not my first choice. So you talk about... Um, the mobility uh, of people uh, within an occupation. Um, and that does not exist in the current uh, aspect that you have to choose uh, your long-term occupation based on your parents. And even though you choose and you become successful later, you might not be happy. And we'll talk about well-being later as well, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I that those sort of issues come up when you start to think about concepts like mobility mm. and it gets really tangled it was one of the hardest things mm. that I encountered writing the book is trying to untangle all these different ideas about mobility and different kinds of mobility and what do mm. they actually mean you know because people sort of say you know say quite offhandedly oh well you know it's all social mobility is so important mm. and you have to stop and say well well, what do you actually mean by mobility and what is happening when you talk about mobility and what are the implications? Um, and I mean, I don't think enough people recognize, for instance, that that something like what I would call economic mobility, to my mind, is, is largely is a pretty bankrupt concept. Mm. And I don't say that lightly. But, you know, this is the idea that you, you solve poverty by ensuring that people are economically mobile. You know, if someone is the yeah. child of cleaners, yeah. then they go on, They should. we should have a society that makes sure that they can go on to become a lawyer, you know, and yeah. so they're not in poverty. But as I point out in the book, if, if you educate the children of cleaners highly so that they become lawyers, yeah. that just means that somebody else's children have to become yeah. cleaners. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and if in the interim, nothing has been done to improve the terms and conditions under which cleaners work, then you literally haven't improved anything. You've just rearranged the deck chairs. It's a zero-sum mm. game. And so that for me, that idea of economic mobility is, is like I said, is, is pretty worthless. Um, what is important, in contrast, is, you know, educational and occupational mobility, you know. Mm. So people should get a really good education independent of whether their parents did. You know, that's mm. educational mobility. And people should be able to you know, as you've described, take up whatever mm. occupation best suits them, regardless mm. of whatever their parents' occupation was. So there should be that kind of mobility. But I don't think that the point is that wherever people end up, whatever mm. occupation they pursue, whatever education they pursue, they should have the means to a good and fulfilling life. Mm. And that's where what well, comes in one of my all-time favorite quotes from the, the British thinker R.H. Tawney, who says, you know, I mean, it's, it's, the def it's not the definition of a good society is not that people can rise. Hmm. It's that they have a good life whether they rise or not. Or not, yeah. For me, that's absolutely crucial. Yeah, that's um, uh, that's exactly right. And you, you, you mentioned in the book that if, 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 if they are certain that they will definitely have a mean, if some people definitely have means to have a good life, then these decisions might not matter that much um, because – as for my parents, they said that everything else doesn't really matter. If you become a doctor, you earn the money, you do this and you do that, you, and you do you gain all these things. And even though I, I didn't want to do that, and I, later on I went back into the similar kind of career, worked in science. So it kind of worked out. But uh, that leads me to the conversation about well-being. And well-being as a juxtaposition of both the concepts that you mentioned, the other two concepts of wealth, as well as um, uh, class. Um, I found it really hard to get my head around. And I still do, because well-being is kind of taken up or hijacked by some, the, the word is more used in a holistic way where it has become a word which doesn't mean anything. It's just you put it put into words and you see it on a naturopath's website and you also see it in the budget, right? So... Uh, how do you juxtapose these three um, uh, moving forward in, in terms of reducing um, the inequality or the unbalance that we have? Huh, yeah, I mean, the, the, these are really, really complex um, 
concepts and and what you say about well-being is so true i mean you look at the whole wellness industry which has co-opted that term um yeah and it becomes a sort of empty signifier you just stick well-being on something yeah. and, it, and, it, and it sounds good right i mean who yeah. doesn't like well-being <laughs> um and, and you have governments sort of paying lip service to it i mean i think the well-being budget was a, a masterpiece of communications but mm. actually there's not a lot of substance to it you know the government hasn't really profoundly changed what it does or how it does it on a well-being mm. basis it's a lot of that stuff's on the surface I mean, in terms of how we think about it substantively, I mean, I do think well-being is a really important concept. You know, the sort of one of the key figures in that area, Amasha Sen, um, mm. says, you know, it's fundamentally about people's capability to lead lives that they value and which they have reason to value. You know, mm. so it's about people's ability to form goals, pursue those goals, lead, you know, rich, fulfilling lives. And he says, well, that that's the ultimate sort of, you know, aim and all the other things that we think about are just sort of inputs, you know, things that might help people move towards that ultimate goal. And so that's, and that's where wealth comes in because it's one of those really important inputs, you know. I mean, mm. wealth is only a means to something else, as we discussed earlier, mm. but it is a very important <laughs> yeah. means, as you discover when you don't have much of Money, it. Yeah. Um, and so, that, so that's the connection of wealth into well-being. You know, wealth is an incredibly important support for people to experience well-being um but my concern is but there's lots of things that people need to you know for for their complete well-being i mean they need to be in good health you know they need to be well educated they need to be well housed they need to have good social networks Mm. um you know to be able to enjoy cultural things that are valued to them and which they feel good about um you know they need to have a reasonable amount of political influence um, you know, to be able to take part in the key democratic decisions that affect them. And what I'm worried about in the sort of, you know, as it moves into the third sort of concept that I'm working with in the book class is that, you know, all those things that are supports for well-being are increasingly sort of clustering around people who've got high levels of wealth. Mm. You know, so it's not just that people have got lots of wealth, but they have disproportionate access to those other things. So wealth buys you you know, better education or at least a more prestigious education, it buys you better healthcare, better how you know, warmer, safer, drier um housing, it buys you political influence and strong social networks amongst other, you know, well off, well connected people. Um you can also sort of validate your cultural practices and hold them up as the most desirable one and shame mm. people for pursuing other things, you know, for not eating sort of paleo health you know quote unquote unquote healthy food yeah exactly Mm. exactly um and so you've got these divisions what i'm trying to sketch out in the book are what i see is these growing divisions that start with wealth inequality but then all these other things that wealth buys means there there are all these other advantages for wealthy people that poorer people don't enjoy and then if wealthy people can pass those, if they're opportunity hoarders, as I call mm. them in the book, and they mm. pass, they hoard those opportunities and hold, you know, sort of hold them and pass them on to their children and exclude other people's children from those opportunities, then you, those differences start to get entrenched. And that's when you really have a class system. Yes. And um, I, uh... I found one point interesting. It was related to the conversation. Uh, you sp- spend a, a, a couple of pages on the social uh, media influencer uh, showcasing their wealth, even if there is wealth or even if it's absent or present or not. Um, and then it's kind of related to that that 19th century concept as well. And you, you talk about literature. I'll, I'll ask you about that as well. Um, how is uh, so? It, I don't know how I can formulate this question, but it it seems wrong. The influence of social media that is happening in terms of showing the dreams that people have, uh, or showing them that you can achieve it by doing this, 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 look, I have my Porsche there, or look at my abs, I have a thigh gap, uh, or, you know, any any kind of situation. And uh, what has, 
it's it just feels like it is contributing in terms of the disparity it might not be contributing in terms of material wealth but it is contributing in terms of disparity yeah i i, I absolutely think so i mean you know a lot of what we're talking about here are, I mean, this will sound abstract to some people, but different kinds mm. of capital, basically, yeah. right? So there's there's financial capital, that's just wealth, and everyone knows yeah. what that is. But, you know, there's also this human capital, right? There's sort mm. of the education and skills that we have, you know, that helps us, you know, earn income. But there's also, there's also this social capital, yeah, it's sort of our reservoirs of social connections and bonds and ties, which, you know, also help us find jobs and, mm. you know, build networks and things. But then there's also this concept of cultural capital, um, mm. which the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu talked mm. about a lot, and some people will be familiar with his thinking. And it's basically sort of his argument, I guess, to sort of crudely summarize it, is that a knowledge of sort of what are legitimate and quote sort of tastes and desires, you know, tastes in music and art and food, hmm. that sort of, you know, that education, that knowledge of how to behave, what are the right things in quotes, you know, the right things to enjoy, the right tastes to manifest is itself a kind of inheritance. It's a kind of capital yeah. because it's something that you can use to buttress your position. You can sort of say, Hey, look at me doing all these desirable things you know, and in the old school sense, that sort of going to the opera and, and maybe donating even to the opera or the symphony mm. orchestra and furnishing your house in a certain kind of tasteful way. The slightly more showy sort of Instagram influencer approach is, you know, look at all these beautiful things I have. Yeah, look at my yacht, look at my mm. nice car, look at the desirable holidays I take, look at these desirable brands, objects that, you know, brands are paying me to promote mm. on my Instagram feed. They're all ways of manifesting a certain saying, hey, look, I know what the nice things are. This makes me a superior person. This helps me maintain my social position and positions me as above and superior to other people who don't, you know, share the same tastes or can't afford the same lifestyle. Hmm. So it's a thing that I think sort of is a yet in, alongside, you know, financial capital and you know, education and the rest of it. It's a way of creating and sort of embedding hierarchies and mm. just to, and to bring it right back down to a very simple point is also just really unhealthy. You know, it, yeah. it really encourages people to think, Oh God, yeah, I must be like that. I must have that perfect lifestyle. And it's incredibly, it's incredibly unhealthy, I think on a huge range of levels. Yes. And um, you do uh, go through, I mean, e each time you delve into these uh, social capital, co uh, not social capital, all the types of capital concepts, you always mention Marx, Weber and, and Bourdieu while going through those concepts. And um, that was quite f uh, fascinating to see um, how you interlinked them. Uh, one thing that popped in my head, it might be not related to the text in the book, but um, have you, in your previous writings as well, you know, the mention of Marx always brings up things in people's minds, and uh, but you kind of disclaimed it right at the top when you at the start of the book that you know, thinking that Marx has some good ideas it doesn't mean that you're you're gonna uh, be um, a, a and uh, 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 Stalin and just do that. So um, have you had certain kind of feedback around um, uh, some around using Marx as uh, one of the explanatory uh, factors in the capital? Yeah, I mean, um, not a huge amount of feedback yet. And this is probably the first time that I've really mm. worked uh, yeah. with, with Marx's thinking to any mm. great extent. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, he's one of those massive sort of world historical figures whose name mm. comes with a huge amount of baggage. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> you're right. I mean, I did want to basically have a disclaimer in there to yeah. say, look, you can use Marx's concepts yeah. without subscribing to his entire worldview, you know, mm. which I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm not mm. a Marxist. Um, mm. But I mean, frankly, even you know, even libertarians, I would say, are working in Marx's world because, mm. you know, he described, he was you know, the first person to really adequately describe the processes of, of capitalism. And, you know, and the concepts that he introduced are all concepts that we still work with. I mean, this very notion of capital and what it is. Um, and, 
I mean, so, so what I'm trying to do in the book is say, well, you know, yeah, kind of Marx, Weber, and Bourdieu sort of are probably the three great theorists about class. Hmm. And there's elements in their thinking, all of their thinking that we can draw on. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I find, I mean, Marx's view of the world was not as crude as, you know, everything is divided into the capitalist class yeah. and the working class. You know, he saw the hmm. world much more subtly than that. But you know, certainly, I mean, often when that sort of stuff gets talked about, it does get reduced down to quite a crude, yeah. you know, the adherence of Marx or, yeah, I mean, probably the people who haven't fully understood his thinking, you know, do tend to take quite a crude them and us, it's capitalists versus everyone else. I certainly don't subscribe to that, hmm. you know, reductive uh, sort of way of thinking. But I, but I do think there are – I mean, Marx wasn't wrong to point out that there is quite a big difference between people who do own businesses and who yeah. are employing capital versus people who have to, you know, work for a wage. Those, those boundaries aren't absolute. Like mm. I said, I don't think it's just one versus the other. Life's a lot more complex than that. But that is one of the things that divides people. I mean, you look at – and I talk about this in the book – I mean, it's it's pretty incredible that in New Zealand, the wealthiest 1% mm -hmm. owns 70% of all the shares. Yeah. You know, so at that point, you're like, oh, yeah, actually, hang on. There is quite a big difference between people <laughs> who own companies and people who don't. Yeah. And it's all also a big uh, – it's a bit of a ruse when we hear about GDPs and, and the stock market going up um, as a – um, as an indicator of everybody doing quite well, and with with the data that you have shared, that one percent, seven seventy percent, like thinks that well, I guess one percent is doing quite well, if you are just taking the stock market as a as a um, as a KPI uh, for for economic uh, prosperity. So um, I mean, I can talk to these issues. I had so many notes. Um, the uh, one thing I wanted to just talk about, just talking about the uh, coming to the solutions part. When I was listening to different interviews um, uh, that have happened since the release of the uh, of the book, and um, I don't know, maybe because it was a, t a time limit that they have. Some of the questions I feel that uh, after reading your book felt like they were not really representative of the solution that you actually presented. Question like. Or do you support wealth tax? I mean, it's it's a bigger concept than just or how much wealth tax do you want? So, I just wanted to talk a little bit in detail. Uh, you do mention uh, philosophical and strategies which can lead to economic um, well-being later. Uh, the concept of the la ladder that you mentioned that that we have this individualistic ladder concept everybody has to get on the ladder the housing ladder or the or the financial ladder and the stock market market ladder um and you said that put it down horizontally can, can you delve into it a little bit more because i really enjoyed that concept oh well, that, that that's good to hear because yeah that was part of me grappling with these really complex issues around different kinds of mobility um but yeah, I think very often that metaphor is prevalent of the, the ladder, you know, which is upright. And this comes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, very often the sort of the solution that's put forward is, well, we need to make it easier for people to climb the rungs on the ladder. Yeah. Um, and I just think, well, but hang on, you're starting from the wrong point there because why does there need to be this massive hierarchy? Mm. I mean, why should there be such a steep gradient? Why should you know, the rungs on the ladder be so far apart for a mm. start. You know, there's a huge amount of ideological assumption that's gone into presenting that image of the ladder. Yeah. And it's presented as if it's there's no ideology. And it's just natural. Like, well, look, I mean, it's just how it is. It's the ladder. Look, mm. you've got to help people climb up it. Mm. Yeah. And so what I basically say is, yeah, turn the ladder around, lie it on the ground. And so that then, you know, if the rungs represent different occupations, you know, one rung is cleaners, one as lawyers, one as accountants, one as doctors, one as aged care workers or whatever. Metaphorically, if the ladder is lying on the ground, that that implies that they all earn, you know, a roughly comparable hmm. amount. Or, I mean, I don't think all those people should earn exactly the same amount for the reasons discussed earlier. But, but as you said, have a good life. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they're all equal. The ladder is flat in the sense that they are all on the same level to the extent mm. that everyone has at least achieved the minimum for a fulfilling life. Mm. Um, yeah, and then, you know, if the ladder is lying flat on the ground, then metaphorically so is the ladder for the occupations that their children might occupy. Mm. And the thing that matters there is just that, as we talked about before, children are free to mm. move to an occupation that suits them, not necessarily whatever their parents were. But again, those occupations will be relatively flat, metaphorically, in the sense that they all provide enough for a decent life. Yeah, and they can change ladder, change rungs. And it's quite, um, uh, when, it's, uh, when it's horizontal, it becomes um, easier. Um, mm. Now, um, the, you also talked about um, uh, blocked exchanges because it's it's... It's not only um, mobility that is important. Uh, the the affluence that leads to certain kinds of advantages later, um, uh, for instance, political uh, advantage, and you say that those exchanges should be regulated or uh, curbed or banned. How did you? How would you? How how would you um, articulate it? Yeah, it's 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 a really good question, and it's and it's nice to be able to discuss it. I mean, as you say, in a lot of media interviews, you know, you have to cut to the chase, and they they just want a couple of clear answers yeah. about how do we solve this with it in thirty seconds, and that's fine. That that's mm. how the news works. Um, but it's nice to be able to talk about that in a bit more depth, because yeah, I think you know if you you know if you're persuaded of the argument that I am persuaded of that there are all these inequalities that are troubling, you think, well, mm. how do we push back against them? And there's kind of two different approaches that you can take. Well, and I think you have to take both of them. They're complementary. Mm. One is to just reduce the inequalities of income and wealth at source, you know. So, mm. you know, raise minimum wages and raise benefits at the bottom, introduce wealth taxes and things like that mm. to ensure that there's a decent contribution for people at the top. So that compresses the distribution mm. of wealth. And that's important in its own right. But what you also want, but you'll always still have some inequalities. Mm. And what you want to ensure is that those inequalities don't translate, those inequalities of income and wealth don't translate into other kinds of inequality. And this is where the, the blocked exchange, sort of Michael Waltz's phrase comes in. You want to block people's ability to exchange their wealth for other kinds of advantage. Mm. You know, so we mightn't, as if inequalities of wealth are relatively minimal, they mightn't bother us in themselves. Hmm. But we would not want the person who is wealthier to be able to buy more political influence than someone hmm. who is less wealthy. So you block that exchange. And how do you do that? Well, one example in New Zealand would be to limit the amount of money that people can give to political parties. Because yeah. um, at the moment, you know, in some countries like Canada, that's very regulated. You can only give $1,500 a year to a mm. given political party. Whereas in New Zealand, you can give as much as you want. You can give hundreds of thousands. You can give millions of dollars. And you know, there's reasonably good evidence that certainly that buys you greater access to politicians, which is undemocratic. And there's some evidence that, also, that it even buys you greater influence. And we've got, you know, most of New Zealand's political parties are currently uh, you know, going to be put on trial over concealing yeah. donations. So what you want to do? I think it's is, all of them. Yeah. No, Greens oh, is not in there, but you're mostly Green, yeah. Greens and actually, I mean, yeah. an act yeah. is not under. Yeah. You know, it's not being prosecuted over its donations, yeah. although it is notable that they get some very, very large donations. Yeah, yeah. So what you want to do is basically block that exchange mm. by limiting political donations. So even if people are wealthy, they can't turn that wealth into political power. Yes, and um, also with the with that influence, uh, uh, it it struck with me because I'm uh, my thesis is on um, political representation and, and 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 the structure of parliament for 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 Maori, and I'm working on um, a upper house for Maori, which is a crazy idea for everybody thinks about, about that. But um, one thing that hit me with, with this uh, with this strategy that you mentioned is the, is the agency theory that, for instance, you, you, are, you are selected to represent people, uh, but then once you are in power, different aspects of um, your position 
might lead you to act in a way that is beneficial to you rather than the people that you represent. And political donations most definitely uh, contributes to that. So um, that is one of the, uh, that is one thing that really uh, clicked with me. The uh, the other part that you mentioned were um, certain specific ideas that you had. Uh, the kids Kiwi Saver you talked about it, uh, it uh, before as well. Um, but the thing that was quite interesting was the collective entrepreneurship idea that you talked about. Like, for instance, it's very individualistic right now at the moment. And so it's already it's in the book. And I won't go through all the five points because people need to read the book. Um, but um, if we can uh, talk a, a little bit more ab- about this entrepreneurship idea, which is very, very individualistic, it might be quite same to the U.S. as it as it exists in, in New Zealand. Yeah, it it is, and I think it's in contrast to the way that the Scandinavians, for instance, you know, approach this question. Um, you know, and the, the Scandinavia, I mean, some of the Scandinavian cities, you know, are absolute hotbeds of innovation. You know, they rank mm. highest in the world on some of those sort of creativity and innovation indices. You know, huge numbers of patents registered, sort of very flourishing economies. And their approach to it is, yeah, is to be much better at recognizing the collective dimensions of an, of entrepreneurship. I mean, in New Zealand, you're right, as in the US, we tend to see that as an individual thing. You know, mm-hmm. someone has an idea, they start up a business, they do it all themselves, and then they bear all the consequences themselves. You know, so if it goes badly, um, business fails, and then they have to, you know, they're unemployed and they have to try to survive on an unemployment benefit that's about $300 a week. Mm. Yeah, if it goes well, they, you know, keep, virtually all the rewards themselves, you know, beyond sort of any any tax that they might pay or whatever they share with their employees, which is often, you know, not that much proportional to how much money they've made. Mm. And, you know, and I think both dimensions of that are wrong. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I'm amazed that people start up businesses in New Zealand when the consequence of failure is you wind up on, you know, trying to hold your life together on $300 a week if, you mm. know, if you fail. So I think, you know, if there's a if we have a collective interest in there being entrepreneurship, you know, if mm. it's an collective interest to encourage it, then we, we should have higher benefits. You know, especially mm. for people who just come out of work or whose business has just failed, because it's in our collective interest to cushion the impacts mm. of that failure. You know, so that's an argument for greater welfare support, for greater cushioning of unemployment, on the one hand. So taking a more collective approach to the risks. I also think we should take a more collective approach to the rewards. You know, if someone does well from their entrepreneurship, they will have relied on a whole lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, despite the myth of the individualistic entrepreneur, they will also have used a lot of collective goods, you know, driven on taxpayer-funded roads, used taxpayer-funded mm-hmm. education and health care yep. and the court system. And so I think people who've done well, you know, who should be paying more in tax, they should be putting more back into those collective resources and I think they should be at the very least encouraged to share more with their employees. So like something like the Americans do for all their other faults, they're quite big into employee share ownership programs where you make sure that people who are working for you have got mm. some kind of stake in the company. And so when it does well, they do well on top of their salary. Yes. Um, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great idea. Um, and hopefully, um, uh, some of these things as an ideology starts to uh, seep in, uh, because you do mention in the book that obviously you can't just pick up a thing and stamp it as a policy and then it starts working. You have to do a stepwise process, which was, uh, which was pretty good. Now we are at about 57 minutes and I had so many things more to talk to you about. Uh, for instance, uh, the uh, meritocracy concept, which was really interesting, interesting to me, uh, that it might not really work th- that well, and some of the nerdy concepts around the um, uh, on the Gatsby graph and Piketty's work. But I think we might, <laughs> might have to do that with another podcast another time, uh, because an hour is a lot of time that I've taken from you. Uh, thank you very much for joining. Um, what's happening next? What's what's uh, what's next on your plate in terms um, of uh, writing? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, in the first instance, just, just trying to get the book out there. I mean, at the moment, it's quite hard to do events because of COVID, but I'm hopeful that next year I'll be able to do a whole lot of in-person events. Um, with my first inequality book, you know, I literally, I did North Island tours, South Island tours. I went to towns large and small. You know, I love talking to people in person. Um, so definitely, definitely that. Um, promoting that uh, and then otherwise I might I also have my other area of interest is democratic participation and sort of renewing democracy uh, so I might do some more writing on that but um, for the moment just just trying to get the book out there as much as possible well thanks Max um, Max Rushbrook Rashbrook Max Rashbrook his book uh, Too Much Money How Wealth Disparities Are Unbalancing Aotearoa New Zealand uh, it's a fantastic read and it uh, makes you think so go ahead and buy it it's uh, available everywhere um, it's published by uh, Bridget Williams Books so uh, thank you for joining Max and um, uh, Kia ora everyone see you in the next episode <laughs>